a letter went out to the Friends of the Book Arts Press this afternoon, formally inviting them, and you too are invited, to the Friends of the Book Arts Press combined Christmas party, which will be held here on Monday, the 17th of December, with the New York chapter of the American Printing History Association, Barbara Paulson, the, the Lord High Everything Else of the New York chapter of the American Printing History Association, and on frequent occasion, an even higher position, is here to answer any questions in the unlikely event that you have any about this meeting, which should be interesting not only because of our usual custom of showing the films and videotapes that the school has acquired in the past year on graphic art subjects, but also in that we expect to be able to show you a rough cut of the first production of Book Arts Press publications. We are taking a video crew to Columbia, Maryland next weekend to film Stan Nelson, who's a specialist in the history of printing at the Smithsonian's Division of Graphic Arts, to film Stan preparing a piece of metal for a punch, cutting a punch, preparing a matrix for casting type, casting type, and then justifying it uh, and making it ready for printing. It will pick up, in other words, from where the very good but elementary Plantin Moratus film leaves off. And if this venture is successful, as we're confident that it will be, then we expect to be producing a series of videotapes on historical subjects having to do with the history of the on historical subjects having to do with bibliography and uh, book history. First as an adjunct to our own teaching programs and then for sale at a modest price to other programs around the country who would be interested in such a thing. Our lecturer next Monday will be David Vandermeulen from the University of Virginia who will be speaking on textual problems in Pope's Dunciad and the use of identification in paper as a means of identifying the priority of editions. He's one of the few people in the country now working on paper analysis, and his lecture should be very interesting indeed. Our lecturer this evening is Ellen Dunlap, who is the director of the Rosenbach Library in Philadelphia, the Rosenbach Museum and Library. Before her translation to the Rosenbach last year, she was in a position which I believe had no formal name, but which in lower case was that of curator of manuscripts at the Humanities Research Center at the University of Texas, another Lloyd High everything else position if ever there was one. She is, however, now Lord High everything, and that is what she's going to speak to us about tonight. It's a great pleasure to welcome our old friend, Ellen Dunlap, to this podium. This is really going to be fun for me. I don't know what this really has to do with book arts because really the art I'm going to be talking about is the art of how to keep an independent organization running. And I don't know if it's an art or a science. I haven't yet figured that out, but I'm trying my best to do it nonetheless. And I guess really what I'm going to be talking about tonight is kind of a process of a search for identity, uh, a personal search for identity, but also an institutional search. And I think that what you may 
hear about tonight may be a little bit unusual for those of you who, like me, uh, have been associated with rare book institutions or parts of libraries that are parts of large <laughs> academic or government bodies. Um, what we're going to talk about tonight is uh, the story of a highly independent institution. And if it, what I have to say is not relevant, I hope it will at least be entertaining, uh, or at least of some interest otherwise to you. Terry asked me to kind of just tell you uh, one year out on my journey, as it were, uh, many lectures which I'm sure have been delivered from this podium, you're not going to hear very much about books tonight because if I started talking about the collections that we have, uh, you would be here for some time past your uh, appointed hour. So what I've done instead is to, um, I hope I will interest you somewhat in learning a little bit more about what's at the Rosenbach and I've brought along some publications for you to pick up as you leave which will kind of tell you the story behind what it is I'm talking about. So for right now you'll just have to accept on faith that the Rosenbach collections are very interesting, highly eclectic and well worth a visit to see which I also hope that you will uh, take me up on an invitation for that as well. So, as I am assuming that you know, the Rosenbach brothers were world-renowned collectors and dealers. ASW Rosenbach made rare book selling what it is today. And while I'm being parenthetical, let me also say, if you haven't read Ed Wolf and John Fleming's biography of Rosenbach because you couldn't afford or didn't want to pay the $50 that it seems to be commanding in some people's catalogs these days, let me know. I think I can get you a copy, if not wholesale, at least a little cheaper than you uh, might otherwise pay. But let me go on with the story of the place. The Philip H. and A.S.W. Rosenbach Foundation was formed as a trust in 1950 by Philip Rosenbach, the older of the two brothers. And he intended the foundation uh, to, to follow the following mission to foster and encourage interest in books, manuscripts, paintings, drawings, prints, furniture, silver, and other objects of art. When the brothers died in 1952 and 1953, they left their personal collections, the stock left over in the business, their home, a double-wide townhouse and garden near Wittenhouse Square in Philadelphia, and an endowment to the foundation Philip had established. The foundation became a nonprofit corporation, really a private operating foundation, in 1953. And the trustees decided that the founding purpose would be best served if the collections were given over to, uh, as a public institution and housed in the Rosenbach's former home, where they would be available to scholars and general public as well. And the doors were so opened in 1954. The first director was William H. McCarthy, who had come to the Rosenbach Company as a cataloger after a distinguished career of service in, as a cataloger at the University of Texas. I've lived with these little collations on the back of card catalog cards all my life. Um, Harvard, Yale, and I believe the New York Public Library. 
As the only full-time staff member, his, friends, uh, his time was largely consumed by organizing, cataloging, and adding to the extensive collections. It was really his job to turn the stock of the Rosenbach Company into a museum. And it was his discerning of the areas of strength that really set the direction for the collections at that early time. Tours were available by appointment only, and from all that I have been able to glean, he was a wonderful, uh, charismatic kind of a character, uh, gave wonderful entertainments of all sort. You could have, he was in residence at the house, and you could be certain that uh, if you were invited to a, a cocktail party there, you would meet very, very interesting People. He even gave uh, tea parties to the kids in the neighborhood, uh, birthday parties all laid out on the Chippendale tables with the gilt uh, tableware and all. And um, it was through his um, conduct of the place that the place continued to be viewed as a very exclusive haunt. The next director, Clive Driver, was hired in 1965 to continue McCarthy's role as a caretaker and cataloger. For the first years of his tenure, he too was in residence. At the end of McCarthy's time, 40% of the books and manuscript collections remained uncatalogued. However, Driver did not have the opportunity to do much cataloging either. His tenure was marked by greater access to the public, increased acquisitions, extensive scholarly productions, expensive repairs and adaptations of the physical plant, and major expenditures. In the first year of Driver's administration, the Rosenbach ran its first operating deficit, $23,000. Now, to understand the financial history of the Rosenbach, you really have to understand the rather stormy historical relationship between the Board of Trustees and the director or curator as the position was called early on. The original trustees were friends and associates of the Rosenbach brothers, their lawyer, their doctor, that sort of thing. Preservation of the brothers' reputation through a monument to their achievement was the first consideration for the majority of the trustees. The collections were a mechanism to further that end. And the brothers had moved in an elite world of scholars and collectors, and the trustees didn't see any reason to try to expand to an, any other audience. This attitude of stewardship extended to financial management. In the first 12 years under McCarthy, the income had seemed sufficient, and there was no need for further agitation about it. The Rosenbach legacy was seen as strong, self-perpetuating, and self-justifying. Except for two of the officers, the trustees were inactive. When Driver took over, he held the first trustees meeting that had been called in five years. Nevertheless, little financial knowledge or control was granted to the director. For the first few years of his time there, Driver was not allowed to see an audited financial statement. Operating with a monthly budget and incomplete information, the, the, the director was not able to engage in a meaningful financial management and planning. He was seen as a caretaker, an extension of the trustees' sense of themselves as stewards. The continuing operating deficits 
driver's adaptation of the house to museum and library functions, the steadily increasing public attendance from 1,000 in 1964 to 7,500 in 1978, and the appointment of new trustees gradually shifted uh, the sense of the institutional identity. The Rosenbach was open for tours three hours a day, six days a week without appointment shortly after Driver became director. An ambitious publications program was initiated in 1966, a membership or friends program in 73, a publicity program in 76. The collections grew by 30%, and the staff grew from one full-time and two part-time employees in 65 to eight full-time, seven part-time, and 30 volunteers in 1978. As expenses grew, so did the yearly deficit which peaked at $117,000, or 55% of the income, in 1976. This yearly deficit was met for many years, one, by the sale of elements from the collection. Most of the items sold were clearly secondary importance and interest, but controversy over the sale of some of the art collection still rages. Two, by the generosity of one trustee who happened to give $100,000, and three, by dipping continuously into the endowment capital. The, the board and staff finally came to accept the fact that the Rosenbach had to choose between cutting back expenses radically to meet income and developing funding sources other than endowment. And you see my, by my presence here that they chose the latter course. Growing public interest in both the museum and the library virtually mandated a policy of controlled expansion rather than retrenchment. The decision was made to undertake the risks of maintaining and developing the public service functions of the Rosenbach, that is, the museum side of the place, while seeking new ways of ensuring the museum's financial future. Understandably, this resulted in tremendous change in the staff and in the board. Suzanne Bolin, who had served the Rosenbach for 10 years in various roles as guide and curator, were, was appointed acting director in 1978 and um, given the, the title of director in the following year. By her own description, her orientation was management rather than collection, which was seen as appropriate given the institution's predicament at the time. Under her direction and that of a new board chairman, a strategic plan for recovery was formulated which called for major efforts to reach and respond to an increased public audience through improved publicity, to develop a volunteer docent staff within a restructured education program, and to initiate fundraising programs which could win support from individuals, businesses, corporations, and the government. Annual deficits in revenue uh, continued, but dropped measurably, 38% in 1978, 27% was the deficit in 79, down to 10% in 80, 8% in 81, to less than 3% in 1983. Kind of by mistake, in 1982 there was actually a 24% surplus uh, attributed to an overly severe spending cut, um, a very good year in the stock market, and the fact that a life trust that Philip had left to his nurse uh, finally was reverted to the Rosenbach, $250,000. Turning to 
the foundations and corporations for funding for the first time, Bowen found that the private operating foundation status was a severe handicap. And so she undertook steps to be, have the institution qualified as a 501c3 institution. Now, those of you who don't talk tax uh, don't know what that means, but it's just like everybody else. You're a public charity, and people can be given uh, donation uh, until Reagan has his way. We'll be able to uh, uh, get tax deductions for their donations. Uh, the business of being called a foundation was always problematic, and the problems still haunt me because many people continue to refer to the Rosenbach Foundation as such, although we haven't been one and for, since 79. And people think that, don't understand that we want to be on the getting, the receiving end, rather than on the giving end. Bowen also saw to far reaching restructure of policies and procedures relating to budget and finance, major capital improvements in the fire and theft protection systems, a heightening of attention to overall conservation needs, increased participation of the Rosenbach in cooperative museum functions and activities in uh, Philadelphia, although not in library uh, work. And um, in general, worked more at re outreach to new groups through the education program as well. During this time also, a number of the bookmen, librarians, collectors, and academics who had joined the board during driver's time, retired and were replaced by corporate CEOs or their wives, lawyers, brokers, and philanthropists. Excuse me. During that watershed year of 1978, the need for long-range planning was brought home to the Rosenbach. And in the five years that followed, efforts at planning consumed much of the energies of the staff and board. Many of the issues, the real issues, however, remained unresolved. The pendulum had swung toward the promotion of the Rosenbach as a public museum and away from its role as research library. And the board apparently thought that it should swing back for when Bowen announced her resignation in 1983, they hired a librarian, me. Now, I've given you a fairly dry and objective account of the history of the Rosenbach, but allow me now to uh, slip into some more subjective observations of my own. I want to show you the Rosenbach in the summer of 1983 as I saw it upon my arrival. First, the staff was suffering from administrative short-circuiting and was rapidly approaching total burnout. The job descriptions look something like this. The director saw herself in charge of general agitation about everything. <laughs> Administration, planning, fundraising, total immersion in budget and finance, all-consuming involvement in the physical plant, overcommitment to outside museum community activities, and she also recognized that her secondary function was curator of books and manuscripts. The associate director was seen in a primary function as development director. He had a very winning and successful working relationship with the board, which the director did not have. He had been elected, as it were, the personnel director by the staff, by popular acclaim. Secondary function as assistant curator of rare books and manuscripts. Also, he reconciled the checkbook. <coughs> curator of arts. Primary function registrar. We do a very brisk business in loans for exhibition, 
especially with the Sendak, Marie Sendak drawings, which are on deposit at the Rosenbach. And she was also the docent program coordinator. Now, we have 40 docents on average, and they need recruiting, training, evaluating, scheduling, rescheduling, socializing, stroking, motivating in general. Her secondary function was curator of art. And the art collection was, at this time, largely uncatalogued and generally thought of as a stepchild. She was also in charge of writing news releases. Now, the administrative assistant, I found, was the self-appointed official busybody of the place. <clears throat> the bookkeeper's primary function was to st stretch a two-day-a-week job into a full-time one and to prevent anyone from finding out that she didn't know how to reconcile the checkbook uh, or to prepare an investment schedule. The curator of the Marianne Moore collection was the only purely curatorial position in the lot, protected from day-to-day -day administrative hassles, but isolated from the institutional mainstream, viewed by the board as an extraneous position, despite the fact that the Moore collection is the Rosenbach's most heavily used research resource. The housekeeper was a manic depressive dynamo. When she wasn't crying or catatonic, she was great. <laughs> and then we have the ex-director. On part-time employment since his resignation as director in 1978, reporting directly to the board, advising the director by long-distance telephone on all matters concerning the collection, and curating and installing most of the recent exhibitions, often with the devoted help of a full-time volunteer. Now, before I make public my further conclusions and observations, I want to share with you a document which Boland wrote out for the board upon the announcement of her resignation, but which I came across only after I'd been there for six months. In addition to being a busybody, the administrative assistant prepares, uh, prefers to stack papers rather than to file them. She outlined what she perceived to be the basic problems which had most seriously hampered her administration of the museum. And you notice I call it the museum, and I just don't have the power to change it over to a library overnight, but give me a little time. I found that I agreed with most of her identification of the problems. It was just that her recommend, recommended solutions uh, seemed at odds to my way of thinking. First, she wrote, for the director, concentration on development is hindered by the necessity to manage simultaneously the facility, the business affairs of the institution, the collection care and records, and the exhibition and education programs. True. The division of responsibilities between director and associate director during recent years has not been ideal. Witness relationship with board. Both have had major collection responsibilities as well as administrative and fundraising duties. True, I agreed with all that. But then she went on with her recommendation. This should be reorganized. The fact that she could not make a more... Um, direct recommendation was perhaps due to her inability to delegate responsibility and authority, coupled with her basic difficulty in making decisions in general. And these inabilities had completely paralyzed her and the staff. I vowed not to let that happen to me, if at all possible. I err on the side of over-delegation, perhaps, and I make it 
a point to make at least one decision a day even if it has to be completely arbitrary just to try to starve off administrative constipation <laughs> her second observation was one shared by everyone else in the organization understaffing she wrote the Rosenbach has insufficient staff for the public service side of the institution, lacking a full-time docent coordinator particularly, and also is short on curatorial staff, curator of books and manuscripts, although according to the job descriptions they had two of them, library aid, exhibits, preparer. This means that none of the purposes of the Rosenbach is being achieved fully and that each goal takes longer to achieve. I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, at least that last part. Uh, but then I found that the problem was not understaffing, it was just that it was being, in, the staff we had was being inefficiently organized. Her conclusion was, part-time staff and staff hired for shorter term projects are a good solution to this problem and do not require large budgetary increases or a long-term commitment to an employee position. Um, I had come to quite the opposite conclusion. My solution had been to strengthen the curatorial staff positions by making them more central to the organization, while at the same time protecting them from uh, additional burdens of administration, fundraising, and the public tours program. The Band-Aid approach of relying solely on so-called cheap labor, temporary and volunteer help for cataloging, processing, and exhibition planning has been thoroughly rejected. In her final and perhaps most telling observation, she said, there is a real need for the time and structure to do long-range planning. Because of immediate pressures and the volume of daily work, this important management activity has never been done adequately by the director and the staff and the board. Quite true. I again took exception to her recommendation though. An outside consultant for planning should be hired. Outside consultants or facilitators can be useful in case where there's a deadlock situation, but as you'll see, this log jam freed itself up a bit on its own. By the time I arrived in August 1983, the associate director, the curator of art, and the housekeeper had all announced their independent decisions to leave the profession. Law school, the stock market, and a career as a neurotic artist beckoned. <laughs> Imagine, if you can, my reaction. Here I was, no administrative experience whatsoever, only worked in one place in my entire life, although I do admit that working at the HRC should be able to prepare you to work anywhere. But um, I felt like I was moving my family to a completely foreign country and three-sevenths of the staff is leaving and it's not necessarily the same three-sevenths of the staff I was considering asking to leave. Uh, my panic, however, was somewhat allayed by stories from a number of my friends in the profession who were also taking on administrative responsibilities for the first time and having to deal with large immovable objects known locally as existing staff. They looked at my clean slate with envy, and in time I too came to see that the exodus was an excellent new beginning for the rest of us. Those that did remain had a lot to get off their chests. <laughs> it is inevitable that a new director has to hear a lot of choruses of, well, in the old days, we did it this way. 
I didn't want anyone to feel that they were having their institution commandeered by an outsider without respect for their feelings or experience. I had all too recently been through that exact experience myself. Nor did I especially look forward to making foolish mistakes by not knowing all that I could learn about the mistakes of my predecessors. So, those, those here, maybe I should uh, preface this by saying that uh, those of you who know me know that I am a rather opinionated person and not especially shy about shoving my opinions down the throats of others. Um, I knew or thought I knew exactly what I wanted to do in reorganizing the staff, but I also knew enough to know that I had to engineer my consent first. Now, for those of you who may still be wondering, uh, my contract at the Rosenbach does specify that all staff, those partially retired and otherwise, do now report to me. At my first board meeting in September, I announced that daily planning sessions were being held with the staff in order to, number one, develop a new staffing plan. Number two, develop a planning calendar to facilitate programming, budgeting, and cash need forecasting. And number three, set a framework for continued in-house long and short-range planning. The real purpose of the meetings was to get all the, in the old days, out of everyone's system and all the complaining out of the way. And every time anyone mentioned a problem that I thought my still secret staffing plan would solve, I wrote it up on the big flip chart that we kept beside us at the meeting table. I'd already figured out that's the way these fancy consultants do it. They only write up there what they want to write up there. And then when it comes time for the analysis of the problem, you've already structured all the evidence to support your solution. At the next board meeting in November, the new staffing plan was presented, along with job descriptions for each position and a comprehensive written personnel policy, the first in the Rosenbach's history, uh, which I have to admit they kind of rejected because there's too many lawyers on the board. Um, anyway, here's what we did. We abolished the position of associate director, and we increased the number of curators, real curators, from two to three. Pat Willis, the Marianne Moore Scholar who curated that collection, PhD from Chicago, editor of the Marianne Moore Newsletter, editor of, co-editor of Marianne Moore's Collected Poetry and editor of her prose, uh, Pat agreed to take on the entire literary collections. The curator of art position remained unchanged in scope, art, book illustration, decorative arts, and the house, which we lovingly call the largest item in our collection. The new position, Curator of History and Bibliography, was created to cover the Americana collections, North and South American, Judaica, book arts, early printed books, and the Rosenbach Company and family papers. Now, as in any very small place, we all have to accept the fact that each of us does at least three different jobs. But what I was trying to avoid was the past situation where each person was going in three different directions. For example, the way the Curator of Arts position had been structured, she was the registrar, the docent den mother, and the Curator of Art. Needless to say, she rarely had time to do much significant work on the art collections. I wanted to try to make certain that each curator felt that the three jobs they were required to do were all pushing in something of the same direction. 
Each was responsible for a full range of curatorial duties for the assigned portion of the collection, inventory and cataloging, development, promotion of use, preservation, etc. In addition, however, each was assigned responsibilities for planning and coordinating activities among the entire professional staff in a certain area. The curator of literature, who has the most patron traffic, took on matters relating to reader services and coordination of our publications program, whereby we try to share our research resources with the rest of the world. The curator of history and bibliography, the unfilled position, one of the unfilled positions, was given the area of coordinating collection records and planning for in-house automation. And the new curator of art, was asked to add the coordination of exhibitions, security, and conservation to her registrarial duties. Working all this out before attempting to fill the two new positions was critical. It made it possible for me to know exactly what I was looking for. The jobs were advertised nationally, and I interviewed a number of highly qualified candidates who I might easily have made the mistake of hiring had I not had this plan in front of me. With such a small staff, we could not allow to let the system to get out of balance by hiring people who did not have directly complementary instead of overlapping interests and skills. The successful candidates, it's interesting to note, were the first two names which were suggested to me by colleagues around the country when I asked for nominations for the positions. Job seekers or future job seekers in the audience should take note. Had it not been for being nominated to the Rosenbach Search Committee myself by one of my overzealous friends, I would never have even applied for this position. And when it came time to fill the professional positions I had open, I turned to the same nomination process. A recommendation from a stranger listed on a resume is not as likely to get a job as quickly as a recommendation from a respected friend of the researcher of the searching party. I assure you that all the applications we received were given fair and full consideration, but they were all judged against those first two that were recommended to me, and they all came up short. Kim Rorschach, our new curator of art, is known to many of you as the curator of, exhibition, of the exhibition and catalog on Georgian landscape architecture at the Yale Center for British Art a couple of years ago. Her dissertation research centered on 18th century British and French art and decorative arts, perfectly suited to the art collections at Rosenbach. And her connections in the museum world through her classmates and teachers at Yale and her various internships have proven especially helpful to us already. The position of curator of history and bibliography has been filled by a librarian. We went from none to two in fairly quick order. Leslie Morris, who received an MLS from Chicago and did a two-year stint uh, with uh, Bob Rosenthal and went on to an MA in bibliography with John Horden at Leeds and a year in the British book trade, took the position. Her special proclivities for cataloging and her undauntable willingness to take on the impossible made her just the curator and cataloger we needed. We also created a new support position, a program assistant. She's our contact with the outside general public world. In addition to taking over the big task of running the docent program, uh, her position allowed me to take care of the problems created with staff strife over the administrative assistant position, Mr. Busybody. 
the program assistant now greets the visitors and answers the phone, promotes and books our tours, runs the shop, arranges our receptions and social functions, opens the mail. That used to take him three hours because he read everybody's mail before he gave it to them. Uh, and uh, in general, she makes life go fairly easily. Now, these are logistics that many people don't have to worry about. But at Rosenbach, you are glad that you're able to hire somebody whose office can be on the first floor because everybody else's office, most of us are on the third and the fourth floor. And when the doorbell rings, it's nice to have somebody on the first floor. Um, about the same time that the staff plan was enacted, I faced my first test of on-the-job administrative training, a mid-year budget review with the Finance Committee. A corporate controller who eats nails for breakfast is the chairman of this board committee. Also accompanying him are two lawyers, an investment banker, and a bank board member. The purpose of this exercise was for me to explain variances from projections at the mid-year point and to outline my steps to correct deficiencies. The greatest deficiency at that part, point was that I didn't exactly understand the budget that I had inherited from my predecessor. Um, I suffered through the ordeal in true David Stockman style. I was a little bit too candid about some things. I was certainly less than candid about others. Mm -hmm. And in the end, I just kind of crossed my fingers under the table and started pulling figures out of the air. Um, by March, everything was kind of coming together, though. The job search process had been exhilarating. No personnel departments to bother me, no nagging problems about promotion from within, just decisive action. We planned the scheme, we wrote the job descriptions, went out and found the perfect people for the job, and they accepted. The staff was very pleased, the board was pleased, and I completely fell apart. I was in the agonizing throes of house hunting with a husband who readily admitted that the more he saw of Philadelphia, the more he liked Texas. And the overwhelming crush of everything which had to be done at once, especially the fundraising, came in on me like a ton of bricks. The future, mine and the Rosenbach, was staring me straight in the face last spring, and I, overworked and overwrought, wanted to pull up the covers, stay in bed, and avoid the entire thing. This was my first real anxiety attack since my sophomore year in college when I made the mistake of taking organic chemistry. <laughs> but it taught me a real lesson that every administrator has to learn and has to accept. The pressure never stops. There is always more to be done than you can possibly manage, and there is always someone there, either from above or from below, pointing out all that you haven't done yet. The reporters who had covered my appointment as Rosenbach's director in the local press had used my youth and inexperience as the nails to hang their story on. And I, too, had kind of used it as a cachet in my first months. But in those dark days last spring, I used it as an excuse to myself, and I allowed myself to become kind of shell-shocked by the whole thing. It was a very lonely time. 
But with the help of my dear husband's not-so-gentle kick to my backside, I did get out of bed, burdened with the longest list of things to do ever known to man. But I started at the top, and somehow you just kind of tick them off. The month of April was spent in intensive planning sessions with the professional staff. My budget for 1984-85 was due at the end of the month, and I realized that I needed to know what it is we were going to do before I could figure out how much it was going to cost us to do it. The result was a 16-page single-space monstrosity that outlined our plans for the coming year in each of the nine areas of our operations. Rather than give you a complete recitation of these plans, I would think it would be at least a little bit more interesting for you if I were to share instead my strategies in making them. First, in the area of the collection. We turned our attention to the tangled mess which is called in other institutions bibliographic control. In the Rosenbach, bibliographic lack of control. At Rosenbach, we had inherited something of a jumble. McCarthy's cataloging remains without peer. And the limited amount of cataloging which had been done since his day was for the most part quite good. But the basic system stank. Most notably, there, was, there were no shelf marks. <laughs> most, but far from all of the collection items, had been entered at some time over the years into large, dusty Rosenbach Company inventory books that will only go in one typewriter in the entire house. Um, these meaningless inventory numbers had been religiously recorded in the books and in all of the cards on the card catalog, but the books themselves were shelved in approximately 20 different schemes around the house by subject and or provenance, although you could never be certain which. The English literature, for instance, was filed chronologically by the date of the author's birth. It's not a bad system in theory, really, but quick, you know, the one book we have by Florence Nightingale, is it supposed to go before or after the one volume we have by Frederick Locker? I don't know, you know. Shelving in the Rosenbach is not made at all easy by the fact that the books are kept in old break fronts and stashed around in drawers and closets wherever space is available. This was a house, remember. The Rosenbach has always requested that readers appear only by advanced appointment, preferably written. This was necessary not because we were so busy that you needed to reserve a seat, although in early summer our six chairs are usually filled to capacity, but simply because the curators needed as much advanced time as possible to get out the divining rod and find out where the damn stuff was. So my strategy in planning for bibliographic control was start thinking like a library instead of like a bookstore. Pick up everything in the collection once and do as much as you can to it before you put it down. You may never see it again. <laughs> this meant devise an appropriately idiosyncratic but not idiotic system of shelf marks and mark the books and the cards in the card catalog appropriately. Create a shelf list as you go. Keep an eye out for those things which are supposed to be in the shelf but do not seem to be. Inventory those books which haven't been inventoried and identify materials which have not been cataloged. You see, um, 
it's all shelved together in this little crooked house of ours, cataloged, uncatalogued, uh, all together. Um, identify materials to be reported to national databases. We submitted 2,300 entries to ESTC right off the bat. Complete a conservation survey record for each item needing treatment and rehousing, and tie and refolder as best you can as you go. And straighten up, clean, and shelf more compactly by size whenever possible. This has this strategy has given the new curators a chance to actually see the materials for the first time, to assess our strengths and weaknesses, and has resulted in a number of excellent suggestions for exhibitions, publications, research projects, and deaccessions. Work by, on this item-by-item item survey is progressing very nicely. We finished the Judaica, the Incunabula, the Codex Manuscripts, and three-fourths of the printed Americana. We have about uh, 35,000 volumes in the house altogether and about 130,000 manuscripts. Work on the English Literature Collection has been started by a new curatorial assistant, an MLS who works hourly wages three days a week and then continues work on the volunteer basis for the other two. People volunteer to work. We have all together about 15 volunteers who work just with the collections and in the office. Uh, you, you heard me mention a curatorial assistant and that wasn't in the budget but I finagled um, the day-to-day -day busy work of recording the receipts and writing the checks was taken over by the administrative assistant, and that suited him just fine. That's the kind of busy work that he likes. And uh, I took the bookkeeper's salary and hired an accountant to come in twice a month. And she does all the accounting part of the bookkeeping, posting to the ledgers and uh, drawing up the reports and keeping up with the investments. And that left me with enough money left over to hire curatorial assistants, which is really what we're supposed to be doing, uh, working with the books. Uh, so my goal in all of this is to move toward the ideal of fewer people doing the administration more efficiently. But back to the collection. Um, for the time being, we are maintaining our card catalog for printed books, but we're using our memory typewriter and the microcomputer we have in-house as a means of reproducing card sets. We are agonizing over selection of a database management system for use of the creation of guides to our manuscript holdings right now. It's agonizing because our machine is a CPM machine, and also it's made by Raytheon, a company that has just sold its microcomputer branch. Um, since this spring, we have also instituted for the first time a system of checkout slips for removing books from the shelf with any hope of getting them back on the shelf in the same place in the foreseeable future. Uh, we have begun the preparation of comprehensive narrative guides and listings of the research holdings of the Rosenbach, which can be distributed, this again, for the first time to scholars and students. We have had for some time this elegant catalog selections from our shelves, but it's admittedly high spotty and it does not really serve as a research guide that we, as we need it to. Um, we have managed to get current on reader inquiries for the first time in approximately 20 years. And uh, 
I don't know why I'm so proud of that. I never reached that at Texas in the 10 years I was there. And uh, we have rewritten our policies on access and photo duplication and uh, brought them in line with standard policies and other, uh, other research institutions. We've also begun a full inventory of the decorative arts collection and are nearing completion of the verification of the holdings of our Sindak collection, these 2,500 drawings by Marie Sindak, which are on deposit with us. Sindak was in the process of giving these to the Rosenbach when the tax laws changed, so we were left in limbo there. By as an, uh, a yet unnamed date, perhaps in late 1985, the curators and I will be ready to present to the board a written report on the state of the collections. The board has never been given a critical overview of the collection uh, simply because none has really existed outside the minds of the few former employees. Um, our report will attempt to assess the collection uh, in quantity and in comparative quality and it will be an important step toward a renewed collection development program. There's no doubt in my mind that we will recommend that some parts of the collection be sold, but materials will be chosen because they do not fit into the collection, not, because of the, not only because of the money that they can bring. Under our critical assessment of the, when, when our collection is, uh, assessment is complete and our path for the future um, development is clear, we will not, until that time, will not be doing any buying or selling to speak of at all. In the area of exhibitions, my philosophy is somewhat different from my predecessors, who thought that we'd done all the naturals in the collection and that we had to turn to loan exhibitions put together by members of our staff at tremendous expense of time and energy in order to continue our mini blockbuster tradition. Instead, I'm concentrating more on trying to, to keep our um, exhibitions uh, underscoring the real strength of our own collection. Uh, our next exhibition is on American Indian captivity narratives from the Americana collection. Uh, it's to be followed by a Gravelow and Fragonard exhibition from our 18th century French book illustration collection. And the Marianne Moore Centennial in 1987 will um, be celebrated with a major exhibition at Rosenbach, which will also be seen in Chicago and New York. Uh, of course, the lure of borrowing for a blockbuster is always there. The Rosenwald show that we borrowed in 1983 from the Library of Congress and the Haggadah show, which we did this year, were tremendous successes. And I would dearly love myself to be able to afford the insurance to bring together the hundred books that Dr. Rosenbach spirited out of the Holfer collection in the 20s back together again. Uh, we have lots of big dreams. But to really understand why we do these exhibitions as we do at Rosenbach, you have to understand something of my strategy for fundraising. Um, I basically, have had to change the way that the board looks at the budget. And what I have done is to create, in effect, two different budgets. We have an operating budget, which is the things that have to be paid if we don't do anything else that we plan on doing here. The salaries, I 
hope, will continue to be paid. The taxes, the lawyer, the accountant, the utilities, the security maintenance system, the computer service charges, those sorts of ongoing things. And that adds up to about $270,000 this year. Then I have what I call programmatic budgets. The kinds of budgets that are for projects which I can sell to somebody, an individual, a corporation, a foundation, or a government agency. People don't fund your light bills. The trick is to turn it into programs or projects which they will, will fund. And the real trick is to get as much of the operating budget buried into these uh, program budgets over here. Um, you never lose an opportunity to ask for money, but you have to make certain that what your, uh, your needs are, the needs that are being met have to match the needs of the funder. So in the case of exhibition, the funder's need might be, in the case of one of our exhibitions this year, uh, not only a tax deduction for someone, but the chance for, to have his name associated as the sponsor of this exhibition. And so he was willing to give, most of our exhibition budgets are about $15,000. Now, to put on an exhibition costs us about $5,000 in out-of-pocket expenses. The other $10,000 is the part of the salaries that go into doing the exhibition. But you explain to the donor that that's how much it costs to do the exhibition because, of course, that exactly is what, what it costs. Um, so we can't do without exhibitions just the way we can't do without special projects because that's the way we make up the difference in our operating budget. Our endowment, $1.6 million, covers only 52% of that operating budget that we, uh, that we live with. Now, the same strategy I have tried to use for our promotion and education pro uh, programs as well. In the past, the Rosenbach had their head turned somewhat by someone offering to give them what seemed to be a large amount of money to do education projects which were not in keeping with my view of the educational mention of the institution. Uh, arranging for storm troops of young children coming through the house uh, to look at the Sendak collection um, was a very, to me, short-sighted investment of energies. It cost much more in wear and tear in the house and wear and tear on staff than it really brought in, um, in, in any kind of return to the institution. So I have tried to turn more toward as far as our promotion and education programs are concerned, long-term investments, informing our members better with a newsletter, which we plan, uh, higher physical uh, or visual visibility, uh, more national exposure, lasting research relationships, better connections with professionals, um, and better associations with libraries in Philadelphia, in the region, and across the country. Um, we're also having a changing emphasis in our publications. Uh, the quality 
of our publications will, I hope, remain as high as it has always been. But we will no longer delude ourselves into thinking that a library can make money by being a publisher. The Rosenbach uh, went in for the production of coffee table type books at one time, thinking that that would be a good way to make money. But when they sit in the basement, undistributed, one rarely makes money out of the deal. And I have decided to leave the publication business to publishers who have better ways of distributing the books that they come up with. Um, we are also um, trying to promote many of the publication projects which we have always kind of backburnered in the past because other people wanted to publish them. It must be a good idea. Maybe we should publish them instead. And instead, all we did was to kind of frustrate the uh, efforts of many of the researchers who were trying to use our collection. And instead, I'm trying to work through those researchers since it's obviously they who uh, are going to be doing the, the work that's needed. Now, this has been kind of a rambling through my plans and strategies, but I also want to admit that I've done lots of finger pointing at my predecessors today. This has all been on-the-job training for me. I'm certain that people who follow me will do lots of finger pointing to the mistakes that I've made as well. But I wanted to share with you a little bit about what I've learned in the process. Number one, I've learned that the hardest thing to do as a new manager is to get over being a new manager and to realize that you can't stay locked up in the fascination of what it's like to, to be a manager and to make things happen. You have to get on to the entrepreneurial side of things, the risk-taking, the personal risk-taking and the institutional risk-taking, the, 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 the frame of mind where you're making things happen instead of the worker ant mentality that I felt I was in before. Uh, making things happen is very hard to do. I sometimes kind of feel like it's, it's like cooking and washing dishes. You're trying to stir all these pots and get everything happening so it'll all get hot at the right time and you have to stop and wash dishes every once in a while. And, and no, you just let somebody else wash the dishes and you accept the fact that the pots aren't necessarily as clean as, and the things are not exactly being put up exactly where you'd want them, but at least the dishes are getting done because you've got some other cooking to take care of. I've also learned a lot about boards. And that's something, a whole invention that I didn't even really know what it was all about before I came. Uh, I've learned that um, you don't get a lot of positive reinforcement <laughs> from boards. But as my board, uh, the vice chairman said to me one day at lunch when I was kind of hinting that, you know, I'd like a little feedback, and he said, uh, Ellen, you've never worked with a board before, have you? And I said, no. He said, uh, you're only supposed to worry when they give you feedback because that's going to be negative feedback. If they don't say anything, you're doing just fine. But uh, that's, uh, that's the other thing I've had to learn is that you just cope with a lot of worrying. And in the end, you say, hell, why am I worrying? All those spring nights that I lay tossing and turning in my bed wondering whether I'd be personally responsible for the budget overruns and all this stuff and we ended up $30,000 surplus at the end of the year anyway so what was I worrying about? 
It's been lots of fun. I've learned lots of things, and I've also learned that the one thing that you always have time for is complaining, and I've had a, enjoyed this opportunity to kind of do some of my complaining in public to you. I don't have that opportunity very often in Philadelphia. So thank you for listening. Yeah. <laughs>